Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Even in my own family, I think there were a lot of narratives around money being something that is hard to get. And so you need to be really cautious and safe and strategic with how you spend it. And I think that's a really strong and resilient narrative, especially if you were raised in like a poor working class family like myself. But as I got older and I was able to find more financial stability, I was doing things like letting my purse get to the point of the strap coming in dead and falling off my shoulder because it's falling apart because I just wouldn't buy new things. And I had friends that were like, girl, you, why are you using things till they fall off your shoulders, literally? And I'm like, well, I have this narrative of don't invest in things unless you absolutely need it. Welcome to Everyone's Talking Money podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. If you've ever seen a movie, read a book, or listened to a song, you know how important stories are. Stories are what root you in life and give you a lot of context to who you are and what you do. On this show, we talk a lot about the idea of your money story. Think of your money story as like a collection of how you were raised, 
your views towards money, your beliefs, and all those things that have happened to you related to money. You see, your money story, it holds great power over your relationship with money. And really, I think understanding your story is vital to you being able to live the life you want to live. Our guest, Christina Blacken, knows a little something about money stories herself. She's a public speaker, performer, and founder of The New Quo, a leadership development and inclusion consultancy helping leaders create inclusive culture and organizational change through what she calls narrative intelligence. Christina says, when you think about money, what are the negative ideas or beliefs that pop up? And when you start to list those out, you can surprise yourself with, wow, I have a very specific narrative around money and how it connects to my identity, self-worth, lifestyle, and the impact I'm having in the world. In this episode, Christina will guide you through questions to help you unpack your narrative around money and figure out if your money truly lines up with your values so you can ultimately rewrite and reclaim your money story. Let's start talking. Well, Christina, I am so excited to have you join us on the podcast today. We've got a lot to talk about. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I am over the moon to talk about these things today. Nice. Well, you know, just to kind of start out, I guess this is the big place to start, but our money stories are, I think, typically rooted in negativity, whether it's scarcity or false beliefs or things that others have told us, like, you know, you're never going to make enough money or you're never going to be successful. And one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on the show today is talk about all of these things you're an expert in, really helping us understand our stories and the narrative we tell ourselves. And then how that really impacts our money stories from childhood to, you know, where we are today. I'm also excited to talk to you about this idea of disrupting biases that we all have around money and figuring out how we can build a better relationship with ourselves. So to kind of get started here, I want to talk about something that you call narrative intelligence. Uh, first, I want to understand, you know, what that is and then and then how can we use narrative intelligence to really help us understand our money stories so that we can go out and like really achieve our goals? I love this question because anytime I bring up the topic of narrative intelligence, whether it be a talk or online, people go, what the hell is that? And I'm like, you know, it's something you use every single day. It's just, we're not really that conscious of it because we start using narratives at the age of three to really understand how the world works. And the term was coined, I think, in like the 1950s or 60s by AI researchers. And they were trying to discover how do robots and algorithms organize information and how can we get them to organize that information like humans do, which is a narrative format. So they were doing all these studies and they realized that we have this unique capability of attaching stories to the events and things happening around us to create meaning, to make decisions, to assess if a situation is safe or not safe. So our narrative intelligence is a tool that we can use to think about the choices we're making in the world, to connect with each other, and even to change our own behavior over time. I think when it comes to money, we learn a lot of narratives and stories about who should receive money, what does money mean, how we keep it, how we hoard it, potentially if we gain money, how is it going to essentially affect someone else. And so I think our narrative intelligence is a starting point of understanding our relationship to money and how it affects people when we're navigating the world. What is it about age three when we start narratives? Is that just when our brain is kind of developed to the point where we can understand narrative? 
I think for a lot of people, it's probably because we're finally getting the motor social skills to be able to communicate. So at three, we're starting to play around with, you've probably had maybe a family member, a cousin, a niece, a nephew that's told a story that makes absolutely no sense. They're like, the ball went over the tree and then the aliens came and you're like, that's cute. I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm so glad that you're discovering this aspect of the human experience, which is crafting narratives to explain the world around us and to convey to someone else our personal experiences and our lived experiences. And so that's a really early age to be catching on to that behavior. And as we get older, we begin to either lean into it pretty significantly. So people who end up going into jobs that have storytelling at the center are typically advertisers or entertainers or writers. But even if you're not in a creative field, you use narrative every single day, whether it's to convince somebody to eat their vegetables at dinner or it's to you know talk to a friend and convey to them a fun experience you've had. We're constantly using this tool, even if we're not conscious of it. I think that's really powerful. It makes me think about uh, a couple of things. One, I'm thinking about how you know you could grow up in a family with siblings and you each have, like particularly if we're going to talk about money, we each have a different narrative, I guess, or view of how we were raised or how our family talked about money. And so somebody could have, you know, some sort of money trauma or false belief. And then the other sibling just didn't pick up on that narrative at all. Do you see that happen too, where even in like family units, because of narrative, like we can see things from lots of different perspectives? Oh, absolutely. Like even in my own family, I think there were a lot of narratives around money being something that is hard to get. And so you need to be really cautious and safe and strategic with how you spend it. And I think that's a really strong and resilient narrative, especially if you were raised in like a poor working class family like myself. But as I got older and I was able to find more financial stability, I was doing things like letting my purse get to the point of the strap coming undone and falling off my shoulder because it's falling apart because I just wouldn't buy new things. And I had friends that were like, girl, you, why are you using things till they fall off your shoulders, literally? And I'm like, well, I have this narrative of don't invest in things unless you absolutely need it. And so there was a scarcity mindset that I had picked up. And on the flip side, I have a sibling who, when she gets money, because we didn't have a lot of it, she spends it impulsively. And so that scarcity of money is hard to get. My response was, maybe I need to be overly cautious in a point of not taking care of certain things for myself because I felt like it was a splurge or a luxury. And my sibling was the opposite of, I don't know when I'm going to get this again. So let me make wall out and make it a fun experience or, you know, use it while I can because it's fleeting. So it was interesting that that scarcity narrative affected us in different ways. And I think all of us could probably go back to our early stories and experiences and unpack, why do I have the story about money? How true is it? And how much of this is a benefit to my current life? And how much is it a detriment to my current life. And even this idea of conflating our worth with money, money is just a tool. It's something that shaped our system. And essentially it's not a defining point. It shouldn't be, but most of us have been given a lot of narratives about how money defines who we are. And I think it's important to separate those two as well. Yeah. Wow. I mean, definitely I would say in my twenties, I had that, that false belief that my value was equal to the size of my bank account. And I mean, I I was spending money that I didn't have, you know, just to, I don't know, make myself feel better or try to feel like I had some sort of status. And it, it took a long time to really shake that out of me. And so I would imagine that so many other people listening, you know, can at least maybe as you're talking, like tap into something that 
um, maybe they haven't explored before or some false belief they had. And I think for those of us listening, like we're still very much in our money story. So much of it has been written, but so much of it is still totally unwritten. And that's, I think, the exciting part. So I'm curious, like Christina, what can what can our money stories teach us, even if maybe we're not happy about where we're at? Well, one of the things I teach a lot of, you know, the work that I do around um, leadership and DEI and behavior change is this concept of self-inquiry and narrative inquiry. And it's the process of asking yourself really introspective questions so you can unpack the core belief that's driving your behavior. So one of the things I ask people to do is to think about if they're going to try a new thing or put a new idea into the world, what are the fears or the negative thoughts that pop up? And this is a great concept you can use with money. When you think about money, what are the negative ideas or beliefs or stories that immediately pop up? And when you start to list those out, you could surprise yourself with, wow, I have a very specific sort of narrative around money and how it connects to my identity, my self-worth, my lifestyle, the impact I'm having in the world. So that's the first step is you aren't conscious of your stories until you actually place them down somewhere and note them. And then you can look at the ones that are limiting or false and challenge them with potentially new thoughts or new ideas. So for myself, this idea of money is really hard to get. And so I need to suffer to be able to, one, ask get it in any kind of way. And two, to spend it, I need to be suffering in some sort of way to justify right. spending. I had to unpack that narrative and to realize that the things I'm building in the world are valuable and that being compensated for those things in a capitalist system is the structure we have right now. And if I want to make an impact, how can I align my money with my values? So the things I care about, the people I care about, the impacts I want to have in the world, how do I express that with the things I buy, the things I make, the things I say and do? And when I started to do that process, it completely restructured my career, the kind of business I'm building, these sorts of relationships I'm creating, the donations that I give, even the ways that I vote, like all those things were aligned with this scarcity story and unpacking that was a big part of it. So I think if you're able to do narrative inquiry, asking yourself those questions, you can unveil the stories, challenge the ones that don't make sense and start to adopt new ones potentially that can lead you to essentially closing what I call the values gap because we all have values. And many times people will claim certain values, but then if you look at their life on paper, there's a huge gap between what they do what they say, what they make, and what they believe. And money, for example, is literally a tool. I say it's a neutral tool like a hammer. You could kill some of the hammer. You could build a house with a hammer. You get to choose what you're doing with that tool. And money is the same way. How you acquire it and the ways you acquire it, you could do it in extremely destructive and harmful ways or more impactful ways. And what you do with it, where you spend it, you can literally bludgeon somebody with it or you could do something powerful and useful and nourishing with it. So it's really this personal choices and closing that values gap that's important. And what you're really talking about is what I believe is is taking back a sense of control. I think for so many of us, because money is the number one stress and the narratives that either we tell ourselves or that maybe somebody else has told us about money, um, I don't know, they, they cause money to be this even bigger, you know, elephant in the room, this bigger taboo topic. And so what you're saying by going through this exercise and really thinking about money this way is, I believe, right, a sense of a sense of pride, a, a, sen a sense of like taking back some control. Absolutely. Yeah, that sense of control is a big part of it, because 
you know, and I have to acknowledge that there are barriers in the way, depending on what kind of challenges you have or privileges you might have that create your money stories. There were parts of my life I didn't have control over and there were tragedies and adversities my family experienced that designated the kind of money story that we had and the class status that we had. And so unpacking that and also separating my worth from that, something that was not out of my control, um, was a big part of my journey and experience of knowing no matter what I'm able to acquire materially, I'm still a valuable human. I still have a way to be able to express what I care about and build the things I care about, even if I don't have certain privileges or access to certain things. And that's a really challenging path because most individuals will be like, well, if I'm not born in a very specific way or not in a certain class bracket, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. I have no control. And so I teach a lot of people of in your limit of control, which might be maybe two things of the 10 things in a day, what are you doing with those two things you do control? Mm -hmm. And how are they getting you a little bit closer to closing that values gap versus saying, I have absolutely no control. I'm underpaid. I'm overworked. And there's nothing I could possibly do about it. And I know that some of that definitely is a systems issue. And I think that conversation needs to happen a lot when money conversations, but outside of the systems issues we have and those that have to change, what are the small things within your day to day that you can still have control over? So for example, me building a business, I have a multiple six figure business that I built on my own. I didn't have any kind of special windfall of money from family. I didn't get a loan. I didn't have VC backing. I just saved up a significant portion of money, which I call my FU fund, which was yes. like 20, 20 grand. And I saved it up really meticulously over time, over a few years. And I was eking it out by doing sort of like additional small things and work and consulting outside of my full-time job. That was a privilege in the sense of I didn't have kids. I don't have kids now. And I had the flexibility to be able to kind of structure my own schedule. But I looked at my schedule and I said, well, if I only have 20 additional hours that I have control over, what am I doing with them? And how can that help me to get where I want to be? Even if it takes me a couple of years, I'm still going towards the goal that I care about versus feeling like I have to build a business within a year and raise this much money through the VC pipeline. All of that is just one very particular path. And that doesn't mean that's the only path of success. So when people ask me, well, how do I build a business and become an entrepreneur? I'm like, it depends. It depends on what resources you have available right now, what problem you're trying to solve, and ultimately the time available that you can eke out, even if it takes you five or six years, it's better to structure it that way than to give up on something that you want to do because you can't make it work overnight. And that's really like a, a mindset shift, right? To be able to take back control of, like you said, the, the two things or maybe the couple hours you have and use those to your benefit. Um, you know, I think we can all get just kind of locked in our narrative, especially around money. And like you said, there are a lot of um, systemic issues around money that, of course, those are, you know, absolutely need to be talked about and understood. Um, but then that that personal power that we have over those, that time or those couple of hours or whatever it might be is is so powerful. Because I, you know, I talk about this often on our show that money is about 90% mental. Um, and about, you know, 10% all of the how to's, right, we can we can plug that piece in. And so I can really see how narrative is such a big part of, of, you know, the mindset piece and what's what's going on in our heads. And we talked about false beliefs um, and, and kind of our stories growing up. But, you know, what role do like biases play in in our money stories? Well, especially in the business world, there's a number of stories around what success should look like. 
And one of them I call the King Kong effect, which is this idea of infinite growth. So any business needs to grow infinitely to an astronomical, never-ending size. And we prioritize all of our goals as an organization and a company around that. And the issue with that is we have finite resources on our planet and our ecosystem. There's plenty of evidence and facts about that. And getting big doesn't always mean good. I mean, if you think about the metaphor of cancer, cancer is unfettered growth in the body. It doesn't mean it's good. So that's one of the stories that essentially puts people on a treadmill with a never-ending moving goalpost, which is extremely demotivating in terms of creating well-being and meaning and all these other factors that are important for a human flourishing life. So I think that's a big one where people are like, if I'm not constantly getting more money in some way, shape or form, especially if if I'm at the head of a company, a CEO, a leader, I'm not successful. When, when I talk about this with a lot of my clients is this idea of these holistic status quo breaking goals, which look at not just how big you are, but what's your impact on people? What's your impact on the planet? Those are just as important and exciting and valuable, but we haven't placed the same sort of value on those things that we have on a, an arbitrary number that's just bigger every year. So I would say that's one of the biggest ones and it's created a lot of destruction and a lot of unhappiness. I think there was the, like a new happiness index just came out recently and it's evaluating across, I think it's 70 countries or so sort of people's understanding of meaning and, and their well-being. And there was a significant dip in the last, I think 15 years in people's happiness and, and, (laughs) you know, ideas of what it means. And if you think about our exponential growth, when it comes to just GDP or even, you know, profit, that's been growing significantly in certain ways, but it hasn't led to better well-being, better health, health outcomes, more connected communities, healthier relationships, all those other things that matter just as much. The other element of that that I think is kind of the flip side of the King Kong effect narrative that most organizations have, which in turn ends up being personal goals for most people, is this idea of zero-sum games, which is, well, we all can't win, so there has to be a few winners and a ton of losers. And the winners should reap most of the rewards from this organization. So that leads to extreme hyper-competition, which is also detrimental to well-being and collaboration and innovation. So I talk to a lot of my clients about how do we move away from hyper-competition and conformity and perfectionism and move into collaboration and experimentation and being open to really understanding how we can set new goals that are different. It's scary to do something different, but right now what we're doing is not working. It's not working on a individual level. It's not working on a societal level. And so there needs to be a paradigm shift of what we value and what we think success actually looks like, especially with the goals that we set. And when it comes to our careers, for better or for worse, those dictate everything else that we're doing. Most people spend a majority of their day-to-day right now in our modern society at work. And so if your job is creating goals that mean nothing to you or creating goals that are not sustainable, what kind of domino effect does that have in, in the person's life and in their yeah. community? So that's a big part of it is what are the new goals that we can set and what are ways that we can, in our personal lives, if we don't have control over the organizational goals, still sort of eke away from that idea of everything has to get bigger infinitely with the never ending goal. And we're in a hyper competition and can't trust each other. Those two things make a pretty unhappy life. And that's something that I've examined a lot with my work and what I teach organizations in terms of leadership structures and communication and goal setting. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. 
We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. <laughs> I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash E-T-M. Go to joindeleteme.com slash E-T-M and use code E-T-M for 20% off. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited and it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash etm. In those moments when money is just not moving as fast as your dreams, Earnit provides the financial momentum you need to keep moving forward. Earnit is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. You just download the Earnit app and verify your paycheck. Then you access up to $100 a day as you work and you can leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. I honestly would use Earnit in lots of different ways, but what's on my mind recently is 
I need a night out. I need some good tacos to sip on a few virgin margaritas and celebrate you all helping this podcast earn 26 million downloads. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. Gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Talkin' Money under podcast when you sign up. It will really help the show. Talkin' Money under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So, you know, how do we how do we do this? Like I'm thinking, uh, you know, we're coming towards the end of the year and beginning of the year when everybody's thinking about goals and different things they want to achieve. And so many of those goals uh, whether you run your own business or you work for a company, somehow it's it's um, quantified by by money or you know s- something I want to buy or something um, you know I want to do with my money. But like, how do we start placing value on goals that maybe there isn't you know a direct monetary um, tie to? I mean, I would argue that mental health, taking better control of our mental health does have a monetary tie, but you know, something like that, or, or having, you know, some hobbies for ourselves or like, how do we start to like rejig the system? That's a really great question because that's one of the things we struggle with is if we are striving to something new, how do we measure it and how do we place value on it? And one of the biggest things I think about is what kind of feedback are we collecting? And with that feedback, how do we value it? So for example, with some of the trainings that I do, I collect feedback on content moderation and I'm teaching people how to deal with contentious, high conflict conversations, especially around race and gender and class and sexuality in these online spaces and teaching people how to approach those conversations, deescalate them and still build trust in relationships. And so I get feedback on that experience and it's eye-opening and really fulfilling to see people's changed behaviors and changed opinions and change beliefs from the experience. If I was evaluating it solely just by money or by however much it generated in some other way, I don't think it would feel as valuable. And so placing value on how people feel, their perceptions of belonging and fairness and respect, which we can evaluate through surveys, feedback mechanisms is important. We collect that kind of data, but we don't value it. There's sometimes where organizations will do cultural surveys, for example, and they'll be like, that's cool that you know people feel neutral about feeling like they're empowered and heard in meetings. But that's a really valuable metric. If your organization has 70% of people feel engaged and heard and actually can share their ideas, that has a domino effect on your innovation, your problem solving, and your retention of people staying and not quitting because the organization's culture is healthy. So I think we have to collect feedback and actually value that feedback. And there are plenty of mechanisms that exist for collecting the feedback, but most people cast that aside or they don't pay attention to it at all. The other thing is looking at the what I call the ripple effect of our choices and the consequences of them. Because if you can reduce harm, that's also a valuable goal as well. Like a lot of organizations right now are really evaluating their you know CO2 emissions and their impact on the climate because of our really significant shifting conversation around climate change and wanting a planet in a few decades. Like, it'd be nice if the planet's not spicy hot, you know, every day. Like, I mean, right now it's November in New York City and it's 75 damn degrees. It's not supposed to be this hot. 
it's felt nice, but I'm like, this is not right. Right. I'm like, this is definitely not normal. And so being able to say, wow, look at this reduction in the harms from our production process and our sustainability plans, those things can be valued. And there's a number of metrics right now that exist, like B corporations. That's one of them. Um, ESGs in the investment world, but we're still kind of murky in the sense of people are devaluing those things because they've been taught that they're not valuable. So until we have a consensus of people saying, hey, us valuing the environmental impact of a goal choice, us valuing the well-being and health of our employees and how they feel and how they're compensated for their labor, until we just look at those things and say that inherently is valuable on its own, we're going to continue to have the same problems. And I think more organizations are shifting to that because they're seeing a profit first, profit only, data quantified, whatever kind of process is not working. And there's tons of data. If you don't see it like with fr- firsthand, that proves that that structure is failing us, like fantastically failing us in ways that are not, some of it's not shocking and some of it is very shocking. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's one thing I talk about a lot is sort of, there are ways that we can collect this information and quantify it, but do we value it because it's valuable inherently and not just because it's not attached to our traditional status quo of goals. Like my goals for my organization, I've trained around say 11,000 people across nine industries and that's valuable. You know, it's a quantified number. It's a, a sort of number. It's not bajillions of people, but for me, I'm like, what is the actual feedback? Am I getting a high level of positive feedback about what people are learning? Am I seeing consistent behavior change over time? Like those things are more important to me than just the scale and just the number of it. And so I have weighed both of those things evenly. If I was scaling to millions of people, but getting feedback that this isn't helpful, it's not useful, it's destructive, then I wouldn't feel successful, even if I was at 2 million people trained. So that's the importance is we get lots of different pieces of data. We should weigh them all equally and not weighed 90% in the size of it and 10% in everything else. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, as we're, as we're talking about goals and how we value things is um, our habits and, and really our, our subconscious kind of unconscious mind. I mean, we know that between, I think it's the third trimester and age seven, our subconscious is really formed. That's also the time um, many, uh, Different scientific studies have shown that our money personality is shaped during this time too by age seven. But, um, you know, I don't remember a lot of my life pre age seven, but to think that it has that kind of impact is really substantial. And you also share something on your website that our unconscious habits drive about 50% of our daily activities, which I totally believe. And, and I know I do or think certain things throughout the day. And I'm like, gosh, why, why can't I, why can't I change that? So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit, like how can we begin to understand what is happening in our subconscious minds around money and, and kind of the narrative that, that we're, you know, telling ourselves. I love this question. First of all, I hadn't heard or seen that study. That's crazy that it's by seven years old. I know. I'm trying to think. I'm like, what was I doing at that time? I know I played Monopoly and had Monopoly (laughs) money. Maybe that shaped some of the ways that I feel it then. I think, you know, going back to that sort of narrative inquiry process, it's really important to have a self-reflection process that you do in some sort of regular way. Because right now in our society, we teach most people to be pretty externally focused. So you're focused on you know, survival, doing your job, making sure you eat your food, you know, shower, 
exercise, like all those things are important, but sitting with some level of stillness, even if it's 10 minutes of your day to reflect is extremely important because you can't tap into your unconscious if you are constantly distracted and busy. And most people are extremely distracted and busy and very externally focused. And when they do get a chance to sit with themselves, they're extremely uncomfortable because they've been so detached from themselves for so long. It is a very discomforting space to be in. So that's the first step is even if you're only doing it once a week and you have a set of questions that you reflect through, how am I feeling? Um, you know, what are some of my core goals and what, why do these goals matter? Where did it come from? When did I first learn that, you know, making sure I make an extreme amount of money every single year is important. Where did I learn that from? Do I value that thing? Is it bringing me joy? Is it fulfilling me in specific sort of ways? And even if you do that just even once a week or once a month, you're going to get much closer to understanding the subconscious that is driving your behavior. So for myself, I knew one of my subconscious ideas was this idea of finding freedom and personal creative choice, because I had very little freedom in, in for a long period of my, t- my life. I didn't get to choose a lot of things. And so I was always like, why am I motivated to build this business or to have my sort of own social or impact organization? And am I getting closer to that? Am I making the thing that I value? And without that reflection, I would have made certain career choices or moved in a certain way in my life. But I had to stop and process. And I actually started that process of reflection in college. I had a random career development class that I took for like an additional credit, I remember. And I didn't think it was going to be that impactful, but we ended up doing a ton of self-reflection exercises around career and purpose and our life paths. And we made this portfolio of reflective exercises that I still have to this day. And sometimes I read. And that was a completely radically life-shifting class because I had to really sit and think about myself and my values and what I cared about. That wasn't from what my parents have said, what whatever religious institutions I've attended through life has said, or what society told me I need to do. It was just myself and hearing my own voice and perspective. That was major. And I probably wouldn't have even done that if I hadn't been in that class. So I think being able to take space and time, even if you don't write, if it's just meditation or talking through things with your therapist, whatever your process might be, whether it's reading interesting books that are about self-development and growth and new ideas, you're going to get closer and closer to understanding your subconscious and shifting the parts that are in the way of the life you want to live. Some of your subconscious could be really great. Some of it could be you know, motivating and has helped you survive up to this point. And some of your subconscious might be things and narratives and stories that are dramatically holding you back from your fullest potential or creating your highest impact. And so self-reflection seems self-indulgent or not productive when in fact, it's one of the most powerful things you can do in your life. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all in one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash ETM. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. 
You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks, and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. Want to know the number one money question I'm asked? It's how to get started investing without being overwhelmed. So if you're asking yourself the same question, then you have to check out the Investing for Beginners podcast. The hosts, Dave and Andrew, they break down investment terms and strategies in a way you can finally understand. I love that they're making investing accessible and they have an entire podcast dedicated to helping you invest better. Even if you're not ready to start investing, they explain the stock market and financial updates so you can really understand what is being said on the news. If you're ready to learn more about investing, I'd recommend you start with two of my favorite episodes. Listener Q&A, how do you start investing with a thousand bucks, where they explain how you get started right away, and back to basics of building your portfolio, where they explain how to build a portfolio from scratch. The Investing for Beginners podcast is a great way to start expanding your relationship with money. Find Investing for Beginners podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, sometimes it's it's hard work to kind of dig around there in, in the weeds. Um, but I think it's just like the story you were sharing, like it helps open up these places inside of you and helps, I think, your story really, really come to life. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier when you were sharing a little bit about your your money story. We were talking about this idea of, of money scarcity and I believe that most of us operate in some form of money scarcity. It's kind of fed through us. It's the narrative that really is told through stories, whether it's it's media or families, um, whatever it might be, right? There's, there's this uh, message that we're always behind, right? We're never going to have enough, whatever it might be. And I think social media really thrives on this. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, that we live in this very sort of social society right now. You know, how do we get off a narrative like roller coaster 
that we know isn't true and maybe create a new reality for ourselves? A big part of it is not waiting for external validation, which is hard, right? Because external validation can confirm for us that we're valuable, you know, especially if you build your own thing, putting a price on a product is terrifying. You're like, should I put it at this price point? (laughs) Am I a fool for doing this? I remember my first service was a sort of story consulting service. And I went through so many different activities trying to figure out how to price it. I'm like, well, it's this many hours I spent on it and this potential return if they do it. And I'm doing like all this math. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to look at the market, look at the average pricing and also realize and remember the cyclical long-term impact of this thing is valuable. It's not just about the time I've spent. It's the return that they will get beyond that with this work. And so I had to reframe my narrative around my own labor. Because especially in our system, we've been taught that our labor is inherently un- not valuable. And we learned through the pandemic, essential workers, people who quote unquote have service jobs or the lowest tiers of work as we pretend to designate it, are extremely impactful and useful. Every single job in this s- structure is extremely important. We don't always value it that way. So I think reevaluating our relationship to our labor and what it's worth and the price points we put on that is extremely important. And I started to do that with how I priced my products. And even before I went on my own as an entrepreneur, when I was working in the corporate world, I went through a situation where me and my teammates were sharing our salaries, which I also think is a tip. Share your salaries with your coworkers because the more insight you have and transparency, the more likely you can be paid fairly. So we were just being curious. We all have the same damn job. We pretty much work the same hours. What are you paid? What am I paid? And we found out the person who was the least senior on the team, who had the least experience in the field and the least experience in our job, was being paid the most. And we happen to also find out, you know, he was a man, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of bias about compensation and who's compensated in what ways. So I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, so I'm being undervalued and underpaid. So I'm going to ask for more money. So I essentially put together a presentation. This was outside of my review period because they would do a review every quarter. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a case for the value I bring to the organization and the continued value I'll bring beyond this point. And so I had a track record of the money I brought into the organization, the new ideas that I had created, the innovations that I had, you know, displayed. So I had some level of proof and also showed them sort of the average pricing in the market of the job and how I was at the lower end of the bell curve. And my boss, after I showed him this presentation was like, you know, if you're going to ask for a raise, this is a damn good way to do it. He was like, wow, I'm just, I'm shocked. And I asked for a 20% increase in my pay. And which I was like, I may not get this, but I have nothing to lose. A few months later, they gave me the full uh, amount I asked for. And so you shouldn't have to do all of that. Again, that shows you the bias in our systems. You shouldn't have to work this hard to be paid, which you're rightfully should be paid. But the point is, we have to understand that many times our labor is undervalued just in general. And if it's undervalued, what can we do to make sure we're being compensated fairly if you're an employee? So whether that's sharing information with your colleagues, whether it's joining you know groups within your company that are doing audits, making sure that pay is fair and it's consistent across the board, those things can help you long-term because we tell people all these things about money, but if you're not being paid fairly, there's only so much you can do to move your money situation. So we have to also be real about what are the barriers in the way and which of these can we control, which of them can we not. And then the other side of it is if you are going to go off on your own and build your own thing, valuing your labor and not feeling guilty about charging appropriately and fairly for what you make, especially a lot of women undercharge or 
They'll do a ton of work for little return because they feel like they have to prove something. And then, uh, you know, a significant portion of people are creating this kind of loop where they can't get out of it because they're chronically underpaid and overworked, even when they're making their own thing. So it's important to structure that too. Of What is the bare minimum of pay I need to make sure I live and survive? And I need to go beyond that. Like most people who build a business, I knew what my hard costs were and how much money I had to make to break even and not be on the streets. A lot of people don't even do that math. So it's like, do that math and at least charge so that you can be over that. So it is a survivable thing that you're creating. So just doing that basic math and valuing your own labor and time is a huge step in changing your money stories, especially if you've been chronically overworked and chronically underpaid. I I think it's really interesting you're talking about sharing salaries. I think you're in New York. I think, isn't there a new law that's coming in or something like that where you're you're required to share your salaries or employers are required to share the salaries or something they're trying to start some sort of transparency? There's a new law essentially where if you list a job, there has to be a specific designation of at least the salary range for that job. And there's a ton of research that shows why that's really important. Instead of being, you know, clandestine and hidden behind until you get to the very end of your interviews, and then they tell you the the amount arranged for the job and it's under what you need or what you're wanting. It's a huge waste of time for the employee and the employer. So that takes away another layer of the sort of vagueness that keeps people stuck being underpaid and overworked. And that's one reason why they passed that law. So if you are putting out a position, you should be honest about how much that money is worth or how much you're attaching to that position up front. Many times organizations want that veil of mystery because they want to be able to say, so for example, there's a ton of research, especially if you're chronically underpaid, that if you go into a new position that might off of just principle start at 60 grand or something, for example, but if you come in and you've been paid 40 grand for the last 10 years, because you've been, you know, unfortunately maligned or there's glass ceilings or whatever, you might go into that position. They're going to ask you, well, what are you expecting for this job? And if you don't have the knowledge and insight to know that that job should start at 60, you might say, oh, 45. And they're like, great. We were planning on paying you 60, but here's your 45. So that happens all of the time in the workplace where they're like, it's not about paying you fairly. It's about paying you as little as possible. And with a law like this, they have to be upfront and say, hey, this job starts at 60 grand and it has a range until 75 and we'll, we'll negotiate and talk about it. So I'm excited about that law. I think it's going to put a lot more accountability on organizations to fairly compensate people instead of nickeling and diming people and trying to pay the least amount possible for people's labor, which keep people trapped in a, a cycle of poverty, quite honestly. So that's one reason why they passed it. And I think there's another initiative that other states are also probably going to adopt as well. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's very powerful and why it didn't exist before. I mean, I know why, <laughs> but I'm really happy that, that that is changing and hopefully it is that ripple effect. And I think you know, as as we're talking today, we're talking about this idea of narrative and sharing stories and really opening up about money and exploring things and having these conversations. That's certainly something we're committed to on on this show is talking about money through all sorts of lenses and really having, you know, inclusive conversations. You know, why do you think for everyone listening, why do you think it's important, especially with money, that we have these conversations and we share our narratives? I think it's so important because we live in a money system that's literally can be life or death 
depending on how much access you do have to money. I mean, everything right now, if you need shelter, food, water, basic education, healthcare, money is attached to it. And if you don't have access to it, it could be extremely detrimental to your life. There was a study that came out that said if you're born into poverty, it takes 20 years of never having any kind of accident or mistake to get out of it. 20 years. And that's if you're lucky. And so I think us having honest conversations about how much we've tied basic human rights and livelihood to money and how much that affects us as a whole, as a community is important. And also because we're a social species that are inherently dependent on each other for survival, we need to understand how our money beliefs and choices affect each other. Because even the most hyper-independent, off-the-grid person probably depend on a human in some way for something, whether it was the light bulb that they have in their house, which was invented by another human in the past, or if you have a cell phone that was built by 30, 40 different hands across the globe globally before you got it, there is not a human being on this planet that doesn't have an effect on another human being. And so sharing our stories openly allows us to have a more clear picture and understanding of how we affect each other. And if we're going to change our systems and make it so that human flourishing is a standard and not a privilege or a nice to have, then these stories and shifting them can help us to get there. Well, we've talked about a ton today, Christina. Thank you for sharing so much of your wisdom. Just to kind of wrap up, so no matter where we are in our journey, our story, our narrative around money, you know, how can we use what we've learned today to, you know, maybe start to tell a different story, to write a different narrative, and to really create change in our lives going forward? The first is to get clear on your personal values and then really think through how your money expresses those things. So if you have values around community or creativity or growth or resilience or whatever those things are, does your money express that? Are the choices that you're making with the type of work that you do, the things that you buy and consume, do they line up with the things that you most care about? Because A fulfilled life is a values-driven one. And if you're not clear of your values, there are subconscious values that are driving you, whether it's fear or anxiety or scarcity. Those are values as well. So I think that's a big thing is we can't rewrite our story if we're not clear on what the original story even is. So getting clear on it through reflection, asking yourself good questions, and then starting to realign your actions to express your values in a real way is a huge thing that can have a massive impact, not only on your own life, but other people's lives as well. I'm not sure I can find one single takeaway from this episode. There were so many powerful ideas, questions, and thoughts that Christina posed. It was pretty powerful. I think if anything, talking with Christina really reminded me just how important it is to always make sure that your money decisions line up with your values and to know that you have power of choice and control over what you do with your money. I hope you've also just been encouraged to do a deep dive into your own narratives around money after listening to this episode. If you want to connect with Christina, you can find her at her website, thenewquo.com. You can check out our podcast, Sway Them With Color, on any podcast player. And you can read a free paper on narrative intelligence at bit.ly slash paper. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, share it with a friend or family member, someone who you know also is ready to rewrite and reclaim their money stories. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guests and the amazing sponsors that make this show possible. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode. 